Welcome to Understanding IP Matters, an occasional podcast that looks at the impact of inventions and other intellectual property on people and business. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding, an independent nonprofit. CIPU provides outreach within an educational framework to improve IP literacy, promote freedom of ideas, and deter theft. Today's podcast, Understanding the Premium on IP Perception, is the second panel of day two of the Intellectual Property Awareness Summit. IPES 2021 was held by CIPU in conjunction with the Kellogg School of Management. So I will hand this over to Brian Hinman. Uh, Brian, just in a way of a quick introduction, uh, is as experienced as any IP professional I've ever met. Uh, while not a lawyer, he's worked at, in licensing, headed licensing at IBM. He's uh, uh, head of innovation at I, Aon IP Solutions. Uh, and uh, he's worked, he started at Allied Security Trust. He was a senior executive at InterDigital and IP. Uh, and Verizon, I believe, and he was chief IP officer at Philips, uh, 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 reporting, I believe, to the CEO. Uh, so he's really a very interesting guy. Brian, let me hand this over to you and uh, take it away. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, and, and thanks for, um, special thanks to, to CIPU for an outstanding program so far for 2021. I've participated in, it in a couple of the sessions uh, I've served on the board proudly since its inception, and, and we've made tremendous progress, as Bruce has outlined, in furthering the CIPU mission, which I encourage you to look on the website. Uh, we've got an exciting uh, uh, exciting agenda of, of different events. But with that in mind, we've got an excellent panel assembled today to explore this whole idea of what we call the perception premium, which is really how IP understanding really promotes value. We're going to hit on value uh, quite a bit. So I'm proud to introduce the panel members that will help think through this issue. John Kelly, uh, David Teeth, and Zeger Bink, all of which really bring a fresh perspective on this and, and other IP issues that we're going to talk about today, given their deep history of IP and also in innovation. But before I start with questions on the panel, I wanted to sort of frame the discussion a little bit. So IP understanding is really where it starts with fundamentally thinking about knowing how to capture innovation, really knowing how it's captured and understanding why it's important to the enterprise, uh, whether you're a small company, large company, a university, whatever entity you belong to, it's very important. But with this historic, and you've all seen this chart, you know, you see this historic rotation of tangible to intangible values since 1975 where we've really shifted uh, to intangibles that most of us have seen. But really, any company really has, has reflected the ability to embrace the value of IP and are reflecting that in their business strategy overall. And I think it all starts with this common understanding of the different types of IP and knowing what the right mix of that IP is for the enterprise in order to capture in order to fully enable that business strategy and really embrace revenue generation because there is that correlation and that's the tricky part, figuring out the correlation between what you've got by way of your IP stack, that's what I call it, whether it's patents, know-how, copyright, trademark, trade secrets, uh, even data and you know, in designs, really what is, what is that and how does that directly correlate or translate into revenue generation? We're really gonna talk about that today and how that's done. 
Um, we're also going to talk about developing and implementing an IP strategy. It really cuts across each business unit. So when I was at Phillips, for instance, we were embedded into each business unit and the strategic plan on record for each business unit and for the company overall directly reflected uh, a chapter, if you will, on intellectual property uh, to really, in a sense, outline the value as well as, as some of the challenges associated with competitors as well. And how does that affect you from an IP perspective? But how do you embrace this and fully execute on your business strategy? We'll talk about that. And then the last thing is really translating IP strategy into ROI, really looking at what kind of return on your investment can you attribute to that IP? Uh, looking at enterprise value is, is key, but that requires careful thought analysis and the ability to reflect the direct correlation between IP value and enterprise value because so many companies think of IP and it is treated in a lot of companies as a cost center. You know, I was under um, the luxury at Phillips and having it be a profit and loss, it was their own business unit. Uh, but a lot, you know, so many companies are thinking about it as a cost center. And if you're thinking of it that perspective, then you look at the cost of generating the IP. But unless you're seeing that return on investment, it becomes difficult to look a CFO in the eye and say, you know, give me this money. And he's going to say, okay, what do I get for my, for my investment? So that's where we're going to start actually the discussion. So the first question I'm going to pose to the panel generally is, is really how does an increased understanding of IP general understanding, help companies think about and, and really promote IP value in the enterprise and how do companies instill this understanding across the enterprise to, to obtain C-suite buy-in and acceptance? It's a difficult couple of questions, but I'll open it up and, and let um, whomever wants to start. Don, maybe the, with, with, your, uh, with, with your role at, at IBM, and it was quite exciting to work under you, by the way, um, Perhaps maybe you can share that perspective, having really led that that organization. Yes, yeah. So I, thank you, Brian, <clears throat> and thank you to the entire team. I, I really enjoyed the last session. Um, I guess I would begin, in a, in a sense, I'm reiterating a few of the points from the previous session, but I think it's important to stop thinking about IP as something separate uh, from the business, from the product, from your engineering. Um, you know, we in IBM and other places, I've seen successful buy-in from the businesses and the C-suites. Uh, we completely erased that line. Uh, and Brian, you saw it when, when you were at IBM. Uh, this is not a separate organization that is run by, you know, the legal department. It is owned and operated by the businesses and um, is... is is a business in and of itself, but doesn't really hold a PL. All of the expense and the benefits of licensing flow back into the business. So we have consciously erased every line uh, between, uh, between the, the business and uh, the entity. And, and I would urge people to think about it, the mindset, uh, you know, in the old days, we might have a separate quality or a separate reliability organization responsible for products. Uh, product reliability, quality. We erased those lines years ago because it's, it's critical that the product people, the business people own this and make the trade-off uh, decisions. Uh, and then the last point I'll make, Brian, is, and this somewhat relates to the last one, what, we, what we've done is consciously brought all of the business leaders into 
these decisions. So in IBM, we run a uh, IP advisory committee, which is the senior VPs of the company. Uh, I, I led the meeting, but every senior VP from every unit uh, was in there every quarter to go through uh, any IP issues. And that was both a buy-in, but an education for them. And, uh, and, and I think, Brian, if you had chosen any other IBM senior vice president to sit here today, they could speak to this topic as well as I can. Uh, they really have learned it. And I think the, the correlation I would make to the last or suggestion I would make for the last committee is uh, maybe it's better to go teach the teachers than teach the students. Why wouldn't you go, we talked about how do we scale? Well, why don't we go and teach the engineering faculty so they can make it part of their course? Why don't we go into marketing and make it part of their courses as opposed to a standalone sort of course that we're trying to attract students into? So every place you can erase the lines between IP and business or IP and the core uh, curriculum, I think is, uh, is a positive. And it works and it's worked for us for decades. Great, thank you. Um, David or Zinker? Yeah, let, let me just build on those excellent comments. Uh, I think you're fundamentally correct that, that we, we have to think of IP is not something off in a separate category, but it's actually foundational to the competitive advantage of the business enterprise. If we, if we stay focused on, you know, how does a company differentiate and stay differentiated in a positive way? If you ask that question, what's the basis of our competitive advantage and get people to drill down and they'll point out, well, we're different in important ways. And then you go to the foundation of those differences. It's around knowledge, it's around technology, maybe around brands, but, but it's fundamentally around things that are non-imitable. And they're non-imitable either because they're hard to copy uh, or because they're both hard and they've got strong IP protection of one kind or another. So, so not seeing IP issues as a silo, but actually very core to the foundations of a company is exactly the way to go. <clears throat> but uh, you know, what we're always up against is, you know, the, 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 the sort of, if you will, the, the mentality of the office of the CFO, um, where they don't necessarily, you know, they're looking at the balance sheets that got all the wrong stuff on and all the right stuff is, is off the balance sheet, you know, other than cash. So, so we've got financial accounting systems that sort of stand in the way. Uh, there's a very distorted notion of what goodwill is, you know, the, to the extent to which intangibles have historically been recognized, it's in goodwill. But, you know, there's a great quote that I, I used from Warren Buffett where for, you know, 30 years he was sort of blindsided from this stuff because the only goodwill is that which flows from whatever premium you pay in M&A. Uh, and all the important goodwill, all the important intangibles are just not there. So, so you, you both have to think about it in an integrated way and also put the office of the CFO in the right place, in the corner, um, and, uh, and, uh, or, or, or educate them that, that, in fact, what they're looking at is they're very busy creating accounts that are... Uh, uh, are not really representative of uh, what's important. Um, 
you know, you have to dig to the foundations of cash flow to understand valuation. Of course, you can give any good financial accountant uh, cash flows and they'll tell you what value is. But if you ask where the hell did the cash flows come from in the first place, you know, that's where they've got blank stairs. Um, stairs, just T-A-R-E-S. So, so we have a chance and a need, I think, to to build the narrative of the importance of IP and intangible assets. We all know at some level, uh, at least yeah. most people know that value comes from primarily today from intangibles and less so from the tangible assets. But it's not just that point, it's saying, look, the tangible stuff uh, you can buy, it's sort of commodity-like, everybody can buy most pieces of equipment, everybody can build a factory, but what you can't buy uh, in many cases is know-how. So, so that's the direction of travel I think we need to go. And uh, uh, I think, you know, some progress is being made, but we have still yeah. um, many ways to, to do, much to do. Yeah. Seeger, uh, anything uh, you'd like to add? Yeah, it's, it's about education, of course. And uh, it, it, it's, it, it's easier to, uh, it's sometimes easy to uh, to uh, explain what the, what the potential value can be and why we should have something and why we should invest in it. Um, in reality, sometimes it's even easier or much easier to uh, to show the mistakes. Uh, sometimes there are conflicts. Sometimes there's something we lost, and uh, then suddenly everybody realizes, "Ooh, yes, we 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 made a mistake in the past, or we didn't look at it, we didn't invest in it." So, uh, I think having a couple of examples up your sleeve when you uh, when you uh, confront uh, senior level management is uh, <laughs> is sometimes very useful. Yeah, and I think it's a cultural mindset, John. It was great being part of the IBM culture because it was inbred within the business. The appreciation was there for IP. At Philips, it was the same way. And, and what I did there was actually incorporated into the, um, into the objectives and goals of every senior vice president within Philips that they had an IP objective, whether or not it's a filing strategy, supporting the licensing or whatever it was. So if it's part of their goals and objectives, guess what? It's part of their measurements when it comes time for bonus time. So they're, they're, really incented to help you achieve your objectives by making a part of their objectives. And we also, I also presented to the board. So the board got the value of it as well because they wanted to be aware of what risks are on the horizon as well as what are the, you know, are you achieving the revenue objectives as well as the patent filing objectives, et cetera. They took an active role in wanting to understand this. But that's, you know, that's a luxury a lot, a lot of the companies want to try and achieve, but you have to try and embed that in the culture. I think that's really super important. Um, another question, John, is, is really with respect to uh, IBM as, as a proud, long history of having led uh, the U.S. and issued patents every year for, what, 28 years, I think now. Yeah, yeah. And um, every year that, that you know, that, that you've been leading the organization, most certainly. But how and why do you do this so sy systemically? I guess that's an interesting question. Yeah, so that's a great question, Brian. And, and actually, you said the word uh, in your comments a moment ago. It starts with culture. Uh, you can't do anything for 28 years in a row without it being a cultural sort of a natural thing. Yeah. So we have uh, we've built a culture not around IP, but a culture around innovation, which is fundamental to the company. It's you know it's the reason we're you know 100 and what uh, 10 years old plus. Uh, so it's all around innovation and IP and the things that many people refer to as IP is just a way to capture uh, 
that, but it's a culture of innovation. And I often say, uh, I couldn't stop this if I wanted to within the company. It's so fundamental. Um, now, cultures though can be disturbed. And so the second thing we do is we constantly recognize and reward the culture of innovation. And we do that through you know, technical awards, innovation awards, national medals, uh, patent awards. Um, so we really make sure that the culture doesn't um, flitter away on us by simply reinforcing it. Um, and then the third thing which we've talked about is we've made it so core to the business units and the businesses and the developers and the researchers that to them, it's not something separate. It's just part of what they do and it's part of the corporate strategy. And I guess I'll add, I'll make it three plus one since the, the comment around the, the economics of it came up earlier in CFOs. Um, uh, our CFO wouldn't think of not investing in IP um, because uh, he and his past 10 or so predecessors understand the importance to the company um, in terms of the size of our portfolio. Yes, we have a large licensing business, but uh, just from a freedom of action and defense standpoint, the last thing any operating entity wants to do is try to visit IBM on an infringement right. uh, because our portfolio is so big and so broad. So it's both a defensive, um, but it's, it's a well-gauged you know, licensing so that it is material for the company. So culture reward, build it into the business, and then have a business model that's sustainable. And, and then, as I said, uh, with those three plus one things, I couldn't stop it if I wanted to. Yeah. John, John I, I just want to say something, Bruce. So not to be the fly in the ointment, but uh, I think that IBM's licensing revenues, and that's patent, copyright, and I think uh, maybe know-how as well, it yes. peaked around 2013 at about 1.6 or $7 billion, nothing, nothing to sneeze at. But in recent years, it's come down to about a third of that. Now, just looking at that linear level of revenue is somewhat unfair, I believe, because there are other things those patents do that go beyond direct revenue. Can you speak to, to that a bit? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, um... It, it's true. We probably peaked at just over a billion and a half. It's been, you know, 600 million to a billion for, you know, many years in that zip code. Um, you know, frankly speaking, the, the number of patents, the amount of IP, and that number could be almost anything we want it to be. But we want to take a balanced approach to using that IP. So we routinely get into discussions around, well, do we want to do a licensing deal that will bring in cash or do we want to do a licensing and an IP deal that's a win-win with another corporation where our technology can help that company grow and that company is a customer or a partner of ours and so we get a return on that. So monetary licensing is something that is a, you know, can go up and down. But So we have many, many ways of monetizing or leveraging, but I would say more and more since that peak, we've used it for win-win with all kinds of companies uh, to help them grow and to help us grow. 
And that's, by the way, that's a big advantage of integrating it into the businesses as well. So a question based based on that, John, for for David, actually. So I know you've done at Berkeley Research Group, you guys do a lot of tremendous uh, analytics around uh, a lot of different areas, not just intellectual property. But really, when you talk about a company like IBM or even Philips, you have a big portfolio and you've got a balance that, that, you know, other companies can learn from. Right. So companies need to make and weigh the cost of developing and maintaining a big portfolio versus the benefits that you receive from it. So what's your view of, you know, you have to balance quality versus quantity, right? And, and, and really looking at the right, right sizing a portfolio and, and looking at it and where to prosecute, knowing it's, it's very expensive to maintain worldwide. And, and, you know, how can a company really start to look at this and, and what, should they, what should they really be focused on? Well, look, I, I think metrics always do uh, they always are important, but, but, but Brian, you, you, you really do bring to light that um, patent headcounts per se, uh, to some extent, uh, uh, you know, can, can be manipulated. I mean, um, uh, there, there is, uh, you know, the process of uh, patenting inventions, but some players wishing to look that they're actually stronger than they are become quite good at inventing patents. Uh, and uh, I think most people here sort of know that there's enormous heterogeneity in the value of patents. Uh, but the, the, when it gets to the media, even if it's the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times, I'm always struck with how naive they are in approaching patent statistics. Uh, yep. And, um, you know, Partly it's our job to sort of help them understand that, that, that these are at best sort of indicative and trends are important. Uh, but, um, but I think this is where also we, we have to realize, um, I mean, it's interesting, the story of Philips and, and IBM, when you get significant royalty income coming in, you know, whether it's a billion dollars or half a billion or two billion, Yes, that leads to an understanding that there's value there, but we don't want people to think that it's just a licensing value. It's really the underlying value. And I think that's the point that's being made. And, and then Bruce, that awkward question you asked, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of known in the academic literature for sort of two ideas, I suppose. One is the profiting from innovation framework. The other one is the dynamic capabilities, which is about not just the technologies you have, but how well you're able to deploy them and which technologies do you really invest in. So uh, we, that's why the sort of integrated view of things is absolutely important. Yes, IP is important, very important, and people underappreciate it, but at the same time, so is the ability to, you know, sense, seize, and transform, uh, and roll with the punches and shape new markets, and not just be shaped by them. And so, uh, you know, the broader, that broader lens is needed uh, as well to really give a balanced view of uh, how IP and technology drives things. Uh, you know, even R and D statistics. I mean, I remember when uh, Nokia was at eight percent of sales in R and D, and Apple was at two percent of sales and and R&D early on now, Apple is up to what, eight or nine or something like that, maybe even higher. But the, the 2% player uh, beat out the 9% player. Uh, so whether it's R&D statistics or whether it's uh, 
uh, patent numbers and the size of patent portfolios, if you don't have you know, uh, the right leadership and the uh, right dynamic capabilities in the organization, uh, you know, it's not gonna translate certainly in a one-to-one basis through to, uh, to performance. And I think there's, there's a really, when, and there's a commonly known statistic that one to 3% of a portfolio, total portfolio is actually valuable, right? So, but to John's point, you got to have bench strength because there's a perception yes. problem as well. When you're talking with somebody and you're doing a licensing scenario to have, you know, 10 patents that you're leading with, but then you say, well, I got a bucket of a thousand patents sitting behind it. So, I mean, there's just the perception problem does lead to that. But to your point, David, um, the licensing in and of itself is, is nice and interesting for a CFO, but looking beyond that, so for instance, at Phillips, our lighting program, LED license lighting program was a standard, right? And I know Phillips, does, I'm sorry, IBM does this as well, looking at a technology and trying to make it an industry standard. So you're going out generating licensing revenue, but more importantly, the whole industry is adopting it as a, and it becomes a standardized way of doing it. In the LED space, that's the way that the LED um, you know, licensing program was was generated just for that, and, and it generated lots of revenue. But more importantly, the world generated uh, the ability to create the standard around it. So it becomes a very powerful mechanism to do that. Yeah, Brian, Brian if I could just add another example there. Um, you know, in a sense, uh, many of the components within the personal computer, the PC, yeah. were invented by IBM, whether it was the DRAM or the hard disk drive or whatever. Uh, and we uh, held and hold most of the fundamental patents on the personal computer, but we didn't hold them and just build PCs for IBM. We opened up the standard interfaces for the bus structure and Compaq and everyone else then went into the business Dell and it became you know, PC compatible. So there are a lot of decisions you have to make around proprietary technology versus opening up it up as a standard. The whole industry grows. And of course our boat rose with that to a 20 some odd billion dollar PC company just within IBM. So it's more than just the IP, it's what do you keep proprietary versus what do you open up in the standard? And that's that's another great example of it. Yeah. Um, Ziegler, I got a question for you. You know, we're talking about patents quite a bit here, but can you talk a little bit about leveraging a brand and how it could be such a powerful differentiator for a value for a company and how it can be very similar to patents being, being a, a way to leverage the brand through licensing, but most importantly, being a, uh, a strong um, piece of IP that a company can leverage in other ways. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I, I'm more on the, on the branding side. And uh, as you know, brands, and especially in the, uh, uh, let's say in the fashion industry where I'm active in, uh, licensing has, has been around forever and it's generating huge revenues because uh, we, we tend to uh, diversify in all kinds of accessories we don't have uh, just uh, the, the the fashion products, but it's it's a whole range of products, sunglasses, watches. So uh, licensing has always been there, and and it's hugely important. Uh, I think there's quite some management attention on that piece. Uh, that there's something you can do with a brand, and it's it's important to keep it uh, to to increase its value. So I think that's that's very well understood these mechanics. But the question is, how do you how do you maintain that value? How do you uh, let it grow. How do you uh, how do you serve uh, that uh, the, the the mechanics of of the licensing structure, and that is of course the, the challenge, and that's where the, the whole discussion about uh, IP awareness comes in again. I think 
what I always tell senior management is that um, I, uh, brand value is uh, is a process. It's not something you that you create. It's not that just marketing comes up with a new brand or a new name, and then uh, in the legal department we file a trademark and then it's done. It, it's a constant process. You invest in it. Marketing, they know it because they they do advertising. They they come up with all kinds of concepts to uh, to communicate it to the to the public. Um, but it goes much further and. Um, it's um, basically every function in a brand-driven company can contribute to the brand value, and that is a that is a key message I always try to uh, to teach to senior management. And it, it, the examples are very simple. I mean, uh, HR, for example, they uh, they have to make sure that in all the uh, the employment contracts there are the, the right clauses. Uh, maybe in R and D, this question is not well. It's also so important, but on the on the design side, huh, on the on more on the uh, the aesthetics part of uh, of products, um, it's not automatic that the company is the owner of the IP when something is being created. Uh, depends on the jurisdiction, but this is something that needs management attention from HR. They, they when you don't tell them, they don't realize this. Um, same thing in distribution. Uh, it's not just the products are there; they have to distribute it. It's also about keeping an eye on the market and telling senior management or, or the legal department when something's wrong, when there's a where there's an infringement. So you you can go on uh, through throughout all the functions, uh, and you have to tell them what what they can do, what they should do, and this all contributes to to maintaining brand value or or, or, or increasing it. Yeah, so the, I mean, there's lots of ways to measure brand value, and and there's different reports like Interbrand. That was one when I was at Phillips we paid particular attention to. But what's the best? I mean, how best can brand value be measured and communicated? Uh, that's a that's a big question. Yeah, it's a uh, it's, um, it's it's a tough question. There's a lot of attention for it. That's good, and I think um, in terms of brand awareness, also IP awareness, uh, having these reports is a fantastic thing. Because people start thinking about, hey, this is not just uh, this is the value of a brand. So I think it makes it very concrete. Um, I think what we see now, um, uh, we have been studying this also at INTA, uh, the International Trademark Association, of which I'm an officer. We we have been looking into this because this is very relevant for uh, for for trademarks, and um, uh, it's. The question is more about um, what is the purpose of the valuation? What is the who is going to use it? If you look at um, if it's from an uh, from a financial perspective, it's a more accounting perspective. It's more about uh, the, the asset value. Uh, what what kind of number can you give to it? Uh, if you look at from a marketing lens, uh, it's all about the consumer, the consumer perception. How does the consumer react to something, and how strong do they connect with? certain certain issues uh, you can also look look at brand value from a tax perspective and then it's more about the revenue and how <laughs> so it's it i think it's a mix it's also a question of definitions and um uh, yeah that's um i think there will be a lot of attention for it in the coming years and and, and how to sort that out and, and looking at the relationships between these uh, these different uh, visions you can have on brand value I know we talked about licensing, whether or not it's licensing a brand or licensing patents or licensing know-how or, 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 or technology or copyrights, but a lot of the companies that are participating in this webinar are probably smaller companies that have maybe smaller portfolios and haven't really thought about, you know, they don't have the luxury of a, 
a long bench strength that uh, that an IBM or a Philips had, or some of the brand uh, brand companies. But you know, how should they start thinking about and and whether or not it should fit into their overall IP strategy? I mean, if they're trying to to figure out a way to leverage their R and D investment, what's the best way to start thinking about that? Yeah, I think it's it's you know it's a difficult. Uh, it's a difficult task, I think, for, for companies. I think it, you know, when you have an IP strategy, at least this is how I would think about it if I'm one of these small companies is, you know, you've got an IP strategy, you have to balance exclusivity in the marketplace where you want to be the only guy out there with a the technology and you want to, because really a patent is, is an exclusive right. It's a negative right that you should be able to exclude others. And if that's what you're trying to do, then you maybe want to try and, and, and enforce that and, and try and be the only player. But if you want to leverage your investment and go out and enable others through licensing, that's it's a conscious decision you have to make from a strategy perspective. Yeah, Brian, I think that's particularly important if you've got enabling technology that's going to be applicable across multiple use cases. Because small companies, you know, typically don't have the complementary assets to do more than one or two use cases, and uh, uh, and so licensing is really critical for small medium-sized companies that, that that otherwise, you know, would have to go raise the capital to to do that. So I think the the business model of licensing makes different sense for different folks at different stages of their development, and it's and it's really a complicated set of issues. Uh, but for a licensing model to work, you've, you've got to have strong IP protection. And, uh, you know, that's why behind it all, we need the legal system and, 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 and in Congress and the regulatory agencies to, to understand IP as well, because, uh, you know, sometimes inadvertently, the competition authorities will undo uh, a lot of what IP is trying to do. So, so uh, this uh, IP awareness has to go beyond the corporate sector to the public sector. Yeah, I agree. So what about, uh, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about um, uh, the area of artificial intelligence because I think it's had a pronounced effect on, on intellectual property generally with respect to patent filings around AI as well as using machine learning in, in, in developing analytics, smart analytics around being able to analyze patents and, and, and look at patent claims in an interesting way. I know at Aon we've done that, and I know IBM has done that a lot, quite a bit as well, but really how does the shape and value of IP change in the world of, of AI where machines learn? Well, Brian, let me, let me start um, yep. since we have a lot of experience in it. Um, it shifts a lot. It has a dramatic impact and not just in the ways you mentioned of sort of mining IP and optimizing IP, but um, how to protect the IP and where the IP actually is. So with, with AI, there's certainly um, a lot of IP in the hardware and software associated with it. There's certainly a lot of IP in the algorithms associated with it, but uh, in a sense, uh, it's a moving target because, you know, to a first order, it's machines that learn. And so what we have found uh, in IBM and particularly in the industries that we serve, whether it's financial services or healthcare, travel and transportation, retail, uh, the intangible IP value is shifted into the data. And so the data that's used for uh, training, the data that's used for mining, uh, whether it's healthcare records um, or financial records, that is uh, where the oil is, so to speak. And so 
we find ourselves working a lot more with our clients and partners around how do they protect the IP associated with their data. All the things we just talked about, how do you open up an interface to a healthcare record without losing uh, both the individual's personal health information, but also the value that's locked in that individual plus the cohort of people that might've been in your, in your hospital or in your payment system. So more and more AI is moving the puck, so to speak, from hardware and software and algorithms into the data, which is really the oil that's fueling this whole AI revolution. Yeah, uh, David, are you, um, I know analytics play a, a big part with respect to looking at using, using machine learning, but any thoughts on this? Well, I, I find this an incredibly interesting point, and I, I'm just starting to understand it a little bit of myself. Um, and, and what I hear uh, being said here, it's, it's, it's the, 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 the data, um, uh, well, typically we think of data as being trade secrets. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, is it trade secret or is it the copyright angle that's the most important? I'll put that question back to, to, to everybody because I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's uh, David, it's, this is John again. It's not so much in the data or trying to trademark it or trade secret it. It's um, certain, certain kinds of data uh, uh, can be mined for insights. Yes. The richness of the data. It's like captured value from those insights, whether it's, you know, a disease or healthcare or whatever. And it's the extraction of that through AI that's really providing the value. But the core energy of the oil is locked up in that data. So what's the protectable bit though? Is, and what are the instruments of uh, intellectual property protection, which are the most salient? And how do they need to be managed differently from say what we're used to with typical trade secrets or typical copyright issues? It's the, uh, in our experience in the industries we're involved in, it's um, not something that you think of as patentable or trademarkable. We, you don't use those, those other instruments. Right. The closest thing would be the data that you hold is, is one of your most important, in a sense, quote unquote, trade secrets. Oh, gotcha. Right. So it's exactly it's the data, the va values in the data. And, and it's in standard ownership uh, of the data, whether it's, you know, the IP system, however you own it. But I think typically it's trade secrets that keeps that that's yours. Right. And then where, what do you share? Where do you share it? Yeah. And who are your partners? Because you typically don't have all the data you need to get the insight you need. So who do you partner with to get the other piece of data is really important in this whole field of AI. And, and it's got tremendous value. We've got, I'll give you an example. We've launched, uh, uh, recently Aon launched our own fund. We had a $400 million fund that we used for a collateral-based lending. So using your IP as collateral to obtain capital. And we're getting a number of different companies coming in. And it's not just a patent that they're using as collateral. In, in some cases, it's the data itself. So they have access and ownership to the data. And we're able to value that. And because it has a direct correlation to revenue. So it's it can be a very powerful instrument. Right. 
So another um, question, I know, um, Ziegler, for instance, in your book, you talk about, you do a great job, I think, in reflecting on how integrated IP management can have dramatic effects uh, on brand, but you can draw correlations to other pieces of IP in order to achieve success. Can you look, talk a little bit about how that, uh, how that plays out and some of the points you made in your book to that, to that point on this integrated uh, IP management approach? Yeah, it, it basically follows what I just mentioned. It's um, uh, integrated means that uh, you shouldn't see IP as a standalone uh, element. And it was mentioned before in the panel. And um, it, it, it's something that is so core to the business and it's, um, it's a business asset. So uh, the more you integrate it uh, and the broader you, you, you can make that uh, felt through the company, uh, the more successful you can be uh, generally. And, and that is, uh, yeah, for, for brand-driven companies, as, as just explained, that is, is a key element. But there's still, uh, there's a lot of work to do because it's not automatic. Uh, there's a lot of uh, awareness that has to be created. And um, uh, yeah, I think, well, we, we, we will go into it uh, maybe in a couple of minutes about uh, at the, the exchange or the, uh, the relationship between, uh, between financial value and, uh, and uh, awareness. Um, that is a, a big focus point. What we, uh, what we always see is that uh, what you cannot count, you cannot, uh, you cannot manage. And, and so there's, there's no management attention in that case. But uh, yes, the, the integration part is um, is the key message, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it requires active management from uh, from from senior management. Senior management cannot just say, "Well, we have an IP team or we have a legal department, and they will take care of it." They have to understand that it's something that is on their plate, and that's where the where the key decisions have to be made. Yeah, and I think what we call that at Phillips was uh, integrated intellectual asset management (IIAM), and and I think. The reason why we, and, and this was once again, cultural inbred, because you're looking at developing an IP stack, right? You're looking at not just focusing on patents or brands, you want to integrate it and that gets integrated into the overall IP strategy. But the key is knowing what is the right mix? What's the right blend? How many patents should you have? How many, or should your focus mainly be on more the trade secret side because you want to keep things away because a patent claim tells the world what you're doing and you may want to keep it. So you really have to develop this integrated approach and then you have to decide whether or not, you know, what's the mix of organic versus inorganic growth, organically through R&D or inorganic because somebody else has developed and you can save a lot of money. So it's a buy versus build strategy, right? So it's, you know, those are conscious decisions a company has to make. And um, John, I know IBM has thought a lot about this too. And, and um, curious to know your thoughts. Over. I, I go back to um, the, the tendency, again, is to separate the IP and the IP value, um, this discussion. And, and that's, um, uh, that, that's a false decision to, to, to try to make. And, um, you know, I'll give, I'll give maybe an example in our case. Uh, so, okay, so IBM's got this, you know, huge licensing revenue, the number one patent holder, blah, blah, blah. And then we, go, we turn around and we go out and we buy... Red Hat, which is an open source company. You know, you, if, you, if you come at that through an IP lens, you'd say, are these guys crazy or what? And the trouble is you're entering through the wrong door. You, you don't enter through an IP door. Um, we did it for two reasons. Uh, one is uh, Red Hat open source is a way of innovating. So if you come at it through the, through the innovation door, 
uh, you know, Red Hat doesn't have a, a Yorktown Heights or Bell Labs, but it has an enormous innovation community to contribute uh, to the company and to our clients. So through the innovation lens, you say, well, of course, that's why they did it. They now have one of the largest distributed labs in software in the world. Uh, and then if you look at um, the, and, and the largest operating system, uh, Linux, Red Hat, but then if you look at it through, okay, the cloud and the fact that cloud, yes, there's some other cloud providers that jumped in first uh, in public cloud, but only 10 or 20% of the workloads have gone to public clouds and the remainder of it's going to be by and large hybrid and multi-cloud. We did a survey uh, a year ago and only one out of 200 companies said they were gonna rely on one cloud. And so every company is asking us for innovation around multi-cloud and hybrid on-prem and public. And so it turns out that Red Hat has a piece of technology called OpenShift, which is the world standard for multi-cloud hybrid cloud. So when you go through that door from a business standpoint, you say, well, of course, that's why they did it. So I just, I tell those stories because it's, it's easy for IP experts to always come in through the IP door. Don't come in through the IP door, go in through an innovation door or a business door first and then figure out the IP strategy associated with that. That makes a lot of sense. So I know we wanna uh, leave some time for questions, Bruce, but there was one other question I wanted to ask for Zeger and, and that has to do with you know, so we're talking about uh, value uh, increasing awareness uh, and, and extracting value, but does that awareness value relationship also work the other way around? Namely, uh, a proper valuation of intangibles, in this case, brand, really create management awareness. So what's, you know, it's particularly relevant for internally developed trademarks or brands where uh, under accounting rules are formally excluded as asset on the balance sheet. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that is a that is a key asset in the branding world, or a key key issue in the branding branding world, because it's um, when you when you can give a number to this value, uh, then you get management attention. Um, you need management attention to get the numbers right, but that's it's also the other way around, and that is a big issue uh, about about branding. Um, and we saw that there are these uh, these rankings, these brand value rankings. And they, they do a good, good job in getting the attention, but that's just um, uh, external uh, uh, publishers who make this and they do their valuation work and they, they make something out of it. But um, the company itself also needs to do it. And uh, you do that when you have to do it or when you want to do it. Uh, but because of this exclusion of internally developed brands, uh, you, you, those are international accounting standards uh, you cannot just give a number to it, even if you think it's realistic and, uh, and justified. Uh, you cannot put a number on uh, brands on your balance sheet uh, because you're not allowed to. And right. that's what I said. If you, if you cannot count it, you cannot manage it. There's no management attention. So that is, that is a big issue. Now, the, the big brands, they all know how to deal with this and they, they, they know the value of their brand, especially if they have licensing programs, etc. But especially when it comes to SMEs, and we know they have no assets, they, and less and less. They, the only thing they have is their, is their IP, is their, are their intangibles. And so if they are not allowed to give uh, a number to, to their 
to their brand, to, to what they have invested in, um, there's no, almost nothing left. So that is a, a very important issue. And I think this is something we, um, well, also at Inta, we are giving attention to this because you, you can justify it from the past. You can say, well, this was a matter, we, it, it's too touchy. Uh, there are too many ways to, to give a number to it. So uh, let's be prudent and exclude it altogether. But if you know that today uh, a big part of the, the, the intrinsic value of a company is in the intangibles, then it's not prudent at all anymore to uh, just leave it out. So I think that is something uh, yeah, we, uh, we need to look at. Uh, the value gaps, I think we all know them, uh, they're huge. Uh, I read something about, um, I think it was uh, American Airlines, that when was it, I think in June or July, uh, they pledged their uh, their their IP uh, to to uh, because of the the crisis, of course, and um, I think they uh, they made public statements about the value of their IP and IP meaning their brands and especially also their domain name. Uh, I think it was even their CFO uh, that mentioned that it, it had a value of of ten billion or, or twelve billion uh, US dollars. Um, I took a look at the balance sheet. The, the official balance sheet published at the end of the year. And when you look at it, you, you intangibles, uh, it's, it's, um, it, it, it was maybe 2 billion or something. So there's a huge, huge gap. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the bigger the valuations, the bigger the gap in general. So uh, uh, a big issue in terms of uh, creating awareness for IP uh, on management level, if there's no, uh, no formal accounting value to it. And I think that goes to the strategic planning process as well. One of the things we did when you talk about gaps is looking at, uh, at coverage aspects. In other words, looking at the IP you have and seeing that direct correlation with the revenue stream. So you're selling products and services on the one hand, but if you don't have the IP that, that, that sort of covers what you're doing, then there's a gap that needs to be filled. And you got to figure out how to do that. Otherwise, you're exposed. And so that's, you know, gets to this whole valuation aspect. How do you make that correlation happen and ensure that those gaps are addressed? So very, very important. Um, I think it's Bruce, interesting also to, uh, and that's more for the, for the SMEs or, or, or basically any company that, uh, that, that hits this problem. Um, one solution that will work anyway is doing a good IP reporting, uh, whether, it, whether you have to or not. I mean, it's, it's a good practice, just showing what you have. And uh, it doesn't have to be in accounting terms. You can simply list your IP. You can say, we have this, we have that. And um, I think a lot of SMEs and startups, they, they don't do this. Uh, and it, it hurts their uh, funding capacity because very often they do have IP. <laughs> I advised a couple of uh, startups and they said, well, I don't want to do this because then competitors can see the IP that I have, the, the, the trademarks that I have. You know, this is public information. You can see this anyway. So um, let's let's get started. And uh, when you go, you see your uh, your your funding partner or bank next time. At least you have sh something to show them. Absolutely. So can, I think we should uh, ask uh, have the yeah. audience uh, ask some questions. You can raise your hand if you'd like, uh, audience member, and uh, and ask a question. But in the meantime, I, I have a question for David. Uh, David, why? Look, I, I know that IPs get swept into goodwill. Um, why has it been such a battle to get IP recognized properly on balance sheets? What, what is going on yeah. to prevent that? 
Well, the fundamental problem, of course, is what we've been talking around, which is it's hard to put a precise number on it. And accountants don't want to touch anything unless they can get it exactly right. Um, you know, I, I, I would favor putting a range or something like that, or at least having a special report. But, 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 it, but it's diabolical because it's not there. In fact, the only group category that serves is goodwill, which is, you know, M&A premium, which is almost a nonsensical measure of, of value. So let's take goodwill off entirely right. uh, in case people mistake what they see there for actually being the value of intangibles. So look, accountants, uh, uh, you, know, you know, there was a proposal many years ago uh, for uh, triple entry bookkeeping uh, that would maybe bring the intangibles uh, into the picture. But but I, I, I don't think uh, we're ever going to get precision. So we have to uh, assume that, look, it's never going to be there on the balance sheet. Um, and then start educating people, whether you're talking private enterprises or governments too, that what's the off balance sheet really deserves a lot of attention. I mean, the United States of America, every state in the country is loaded up with off balance sheet liabilities. And the whole nation, everybody, every citizen, Every manager needs to be focused on what's not on the balance sheet and almost, I wouldn't say throw the balance sheet away, but pretty much, you know, recognize that what the accountants and the financial accountants are telling us is they're playing around in one little corner of where value is and where value is going to be lost and that we shouldn't get uh, transfixed by this. Uh, that, um, yeah, while it is said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Well, you know what? I think we have to change that. You've got to learn how to manage that which you can't measure. I mean, that's what managing under deep uncertainty is all about. So that stale old Harvard Business Review article that's 30 years old, you know, um, you know, should be thrown away because we're never going to be able to figure out how to measure all of this stuff. And, and if, if we say we're not going to manage it, uh, then we're making a huge mistake. And so we've got to actually change. That's why what you're doing here is so important. We've got to change the mentality of executives uh, and, and we've got to change what we teach in business schools because, you know, we're getting increasingly numbers oriented and managing by the numbers is, you know, companies being managed by the numbers of, you know, you can do that. I mean, Jack Welsh did that for, you know, 15, 20 years and did it well. But, you know, they destroy as much value as they create. You can create short-term value and destroy long-term value. Let me say, I see a question in the queue here. Um, don't your tax departments want to value your IP on your books as low as possible? Can create lots of tax issues. Anybody? Um, I confirm that this is very often a conflict that you can have in uh, in, um, in especially in uh, yes marketing or brand driven companies uh, maybe also in other companies but uh, yes this is a uh, a management conflict that that can exist um, you want to keep the brand value as low as possible because it lowers your tax burden uh, on the other hand the marketing department they wants to they want to see the brand value as high as possible possible because that's what they are working on and that's what they want to have uh, recognized so those are very interesting questions 
Brian, you want to sum up? I don't have any other questions. So, okay. Brian? Yeah, I think uh, this has been an excellent discussion, excellent panel discussion. And thank you very much, uh, David and John and, and, and Zieger, for our great discussion. I think we hit a lot of topics, and hopefully, people go away with the, uh, a better um, understanding of, of how an IP understanding basic can translate into value and in, in, in really creating this, what we call a perception premium. But uh, that was the objective. Thank you. Great. Yes. Thank you all panels. Terrific panel and a great day uh, and a great conclusion to uh, the fourth IP Awareness Summit. Uh, I think we had achieved what we set out to. We had good attendance uh, despite distractions and COVID because I think the speaking and the content was so good. Uh, we will have a, um, a podcast that we're going to make out of this and we'll have a uh, on our YouTube channel. It'd take a few weeks to put it together, but we'll have uh, most of what was discussed the last two days. Uh, we do plan other events. Uh, eventually, COVID permitting, we want to do live events. Again, uh, we did successfully at Berkeley last year uh, with the help of David and others, uh, and we'll do more. But in the interim, doing this sort of thing, it opens it up to a wider audience and uh, keeps the dialogue going. Um, James, any concluding thoughts on your part? You're muted. You're muted. No, oh, I'm unmuted. You. Okay. Oh. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, but Dr. West, did you want to add anything? No, I answered to James too. So you go ahead. <laughs> uh, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Dr. West. Thank you to all the panelists yesterday and today, who have actually shown shine light on this greater theme about IP and all the lives touches, whether it's uh, the minority community that Ellington West uh, brought to our attention in, in her panel, and or the broader concern about uh, the rising uh, collection of IP in, in China and, and across Asia, or, or the education question, right? We, we really hit on a good point. I was interested in scale and and, and David Teese was interested in, well, is there demand? Um, and then finally, this value perception question. Um, and uh, we've actually hit the, what are sort of the, both the challenges and the opportunities for all of us. We are the community that are invested in this group of assets. We have great uh, academic foundation for this, but we, we need to somehow figure out how to organize in a way that allows us to um, harness the opportunities in front of us and it's gonna to have to happen at the legislative level, the educational level, uh, both at, at top universities across the land grants and in the K through 12 community. Uh, we'll look for the great inventors like James West to take us forward uh, with uh, great examples that we can use to change the narrative. Great, well, thank you all and uh... We'll do this again soon, and uh, and it was terrific and very productive uh, two days. Thanks again. You have been listening to Understanding IP Matters. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding. For the video version, please visit our YouTube channel. Audio engineering is provided by Gabriella Conway. Follow CIPU on Twitter at Center for IP visit us on the web at understandingip.org.